welcome to Doctor Who Panel the Panel. This is Jeremy Bument, your host, welcoming you to episode 137 of Doctor Who Panel the Panel. Happy Gallifrey weekend for those of you out in California and Los Angeles uh, at the Doctor Who convention. I hope you're all having a good time. I hope you are supporting Doctor Who comics and Doctor Who offshoot comics by saying hello to all the people out there who are creating these books or who have created these books and getting some autographs and picking their brains about their time working on such things. I really wish I was out there right now because right now and here in Minnesota, it is really, really cold, really, really windy, and it's no fun. But let's move on. This episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, we're going to kind of celebrate the Gallifrey Convention a little bit. We're going to start out by covering the news like we always do. And then we are going to open the Pandorica on the finale of the Empire of the Wolf miniseries. We'll take a look at issue number four of Empire of the Wolf. And then I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about my experiences with the Gallifrey Convention. Granted, it was quite some time ago, but for those of you who have attended more recently, maybe your experiences will be a bit different than mine, and you can hear how it, things used to be compared to how they are now and see how much they have changed. And then last but not least, I'm going to have an interview with a dear friend of mine. His name is Arnold Blumberg. For those of you who may have heard the name before, he is a book publisher. He has published several diff- several books uh, related to Doctor Who. Uh, one of the best ones that I think that he has published is a book called Red, White, and Who, which is a really big uh, book about the history of Doctor Who in America, which we will talk about a little bit in, uh, when I chat with Arnold. He also worked on the Overstreet comic book Price Guide. He was the editor of the book for quite a while when he worked for Diamond Comics or for Gemstone Publishing. And uh, it's interesting to hear his uh, take on the comic industry. He knows quite a bit about it. In fact, that's how I recognized his name when I met him out at the Gallifrey Convention. And we will cover that as well. So I hope this episode finds you all well. I hope everybody's surviving the winter and getting ready for spring. I know I'm looking forward to it. But without further ado, let us jump into this episode and talk about some news. Let's dive into the news for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Let's start out like we always do by covering the new releases. For the month of February, on Thursday, February 3rd, Doctor Who Magazine issue number 572 came out digitally as well as over in the UK. It was a good uh, issue, has a new comic strip, and I highly recommend it. And then on Wednesday, February 9th, the finale of the Doctor Who comic Empire of the Wolf issue number 4 came out. Uh, That is another one that make sure you go to your local comic book shop and pick it up. And that is it for the new releases until uh, April when the Doctor Who special featuring uh, the story by Dan Slott from Marvel Comics with art by Christopher Jones and Matthew Dow Smith comes out, which I am really, really looking forward to. And that will be coming out in April. And then we have a new Doctor Who comic for free comic book day. Make sure if you want to uh, find out more about both these issues, check out my website, DoctorWhoComic.com, for more info on those. In other Doctor Who comic news, for those of you that are out at Gallifrey One, the big convention out in California, I was just going to give a quick list of all the Doctor Who writers and artists and creators who have tie-ins to Doctor Who comics that are out there that you might want to say hello to. So let's start out with Cutaway Comics, the company that does the offshoot uh, or Doctor Who spinoff comics. We'll be talking about them here in just a moment, but they have a presence in the dealer's room. And among people that they have there, artist Martin Garrity, 
is doing a book for them. He is also a longtime Doctor Who magazine uh, mainstay. He has drawn lots of Doctor Who comic strips. Make sure you say hi to Martin. And also Stephen Gallagher, who, for those of you Doctor Who classic people, uh, will recognize his name as the writer of Warrior's Gate for classic Doctor Who. He is doing a special uh, issue, or he's done some work for Cutaway Comics. And Stephen Gallagher is at their dealer's room table signing uh, comics. So make sure you say hi to him. Other names of people who have worked in Doctor Who comics I'm going to run through real quick. Jody Hauser, who is the current writer of the Doctor Who comic for uh, Titan Comics, who's been writing Doctor Who comics for a while. Uh, she will be there, so make sure you hi to, say hi to Jody. Gary Russell, dear friend of mine, dear friend of the show. He is a former Doctor Who magazine editor and who has also worked, uh, done a lot of work for Big Finish. He has also done uh, a lot of work for the Doctor Who animation reconstructions. He is there. Make sure you say hi to Gary. Writer Paul Cornell, who has written several Doctor Who comic strips and is a comic writer. In fact, he just announced the, yesterday, uh, Friday, that he is going to be doing a new four-issue miniseries based on the wildcard universe from George R.R. R. Martin. He is going to be putting that out through Marvel, so that is good to hear. Tony Lee, who is a prolific writer of all sorts of different things, but he wrote a lot of Doctor Who comics, uh, primarily featuring the Tenth Doctor in uh, from IDW back in the day. He is a Gallifrey One mainstay, and he is at the convention, so make sure you track him down and get some comics signed if you have them. In the world of animation, Rob Ritchie, who has worked on a lot of the Doctor Who re animation reconstructions, he will be there at Gallifrey One. And also in, from uh, Doctor Who magazine, Emily Cook, who is a uh, contributor to Doctor Who magazine, she is there, as well as Richard Starkings, who has done uh, some work for Doctor Who magazine, who's also done a lot of work uh, doing the lettering for Doctor Who comics for years, many, many years now. He is there. And a couple other creators, Scott and David Tipton, who worked on the Doctor Who comic, uh, writing some stories for during the IDW years. They are there in the dealer's room or wandering around somewhere, so make sure you track them down. And last but not least, Minnesota native Christopher Jones, who is now a California native. Uh, he is there in the dealer's room. He is currently working on the Doctor Who special uh, with Dan Slott, who, and he's also done uh, some work for the Titan Comics Doctor Who line. Make sure you say hi to Christopher Jones. So there are a lot of comic book-related people there that are uh, you can say hi to, get an autograph from, and just tell them thank you for all the work you've done for Doctor Who Comics. And finally in Doctor Who Comic News, we're going to talk just a little bit about the new Kickstarter campaign from Cutaway Comics. They have just launched, uh, I think they kind of did this to coincide with Gallifrey One, they have started this, their new campaign for Gods and Monsters. This is book one of three books. Basically, it's... Um, let me just give you kind of a little quick synopsis from their Kickstarter campaign, which has already surpassed its goal in just one day of funding, but you, it's still early in the funding, so you can get in with no problem. Cutaway Comics launches its most ambitious range of titles yet with the launch of Gods and Monsters, our epic crossover event for 2022 and beyond. Over a year in the making... Gods and Monsters will see friends and foes from the worlds of Doctor Who brought together across time and space on board the Eltrala, 
a phantom colony ship lost in space and time, harboring a hidden and potentially universe-shattering secret. Um, this is by the time it's all done. It's going to be a twelve-issue mini-series or maxi-series from Cutaway Comics with various different writers and creators. They are going to do this as three different books that they're going to fund via Kickstarter. And if you go to Kickstarter and do a search for either Cutaway Comics or Gods and Monsters, you should be able to track this down. I'll let you read more about it for yourself. And uh, hopefully, in the next month or two, we will have someone from Cutaway Comics here on the show to talk about uh, this uh, new maxi-series that they are doing, and we will find out more information then. So make sure you go check that out. Make sure if you're at Gallifrey One, you say hi to all their guests. And I guess that is it for the news. Let's go on to a review. It's time to open the Pandorica on another new Doctor Who comic. And this time we are taking a look at the final part of the Empire of the Wolf miniseries, this is issue number four. It is written by the writer Jody Hauser, with art by Roberta Ingranada, and coloring by Warnia K. Sahadwa, with lettering by Richard Starkings, and Jake Devine is the editor. This story, for those of you who have been following along, let me read you the previously. The Eleventh Doctor showed the Bad Wolf Empress, a.k.a. Rose Tyler, the truth about the hypocrisy of her empire. Meanwhile, the Eighth Doctor and the original Rose attempted to destabilize the Empress's army, but were thwarted by her second-in-command, Depau, who had secured his own army of Centaurans. So basically, Depau has kind of overthrown uh, the Empress Rose and taken over with his army of Centaurans, and this is the issue where we kind of resolve all that. This issue starts out with our two Doctors and our Roses all coming together, face-to-face, and this is where we find out that DePau basically doesn't have the support of all of the Empress Bad Wolf's army, just kind of his own race and the Centaurans that he's also recruited to help him kind of take over things. And this is where we basically find out the Doctor's fiendishly clever plan of taking the the two roses on board the TARDISes and sneaking onto DePau's ship uh, having both TARDISes dematerialize at the same time so DePau doesn't realize that there are two TARDISes on board his ship and keep an eye on one but not knowing the other one. And then the doctor's using the two roses to create a paradox by touching hands and that causes the Centaurans to poof, disappear, and that kind of resolves the whole thing. DePau doesn't have an army to take over everything and that's it. Um, there's a lot more to the story than that if you read the issue, but I just kind of wanted to give you the long and short of it because in my review of this issue, that was my quick synopsis. My, my fairly quick review was I thought this issue kind of tied up everything fairly nicely, although it was really quick and really easy, almost too easy for them to resolve this by having the two roses touch hands and create a paradox. I would think that there would be a little more substance to this, maybe a little bit more going on, a little bit more battling between of, of trying to stop the army instead of the doctor just showing up on board the ship, the two roses touching hands, and boop, that's it, done. Um, it almost seemed like this was just a quick way to get to the end so they could have uh, a couple touching scenes with the two roses at the end, and send everybody on their merry way. 
it, to me, it was a little bit of a letdown. I I think um, there there should have been or could have been more to it than this. Um, but I I'm when the trade paperback comes out, I want to reread this all in one sitting and see how the story goes and see substance. I've, I think I've mentioned through all the reviews of these issues that substance wise, the story seemed to be lackluster. There wasn't, there wasn't enough going on for me. There wasn't enough substance in this four issue miniseries. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see if I sit down and read this all in one fell swoop, if it stays that way. And, uh, or maybe my opinion will change. Maybe I'll think it was a perfectly fine story, but, uh, this, this last issue really, really summed up, I think the whole miniseries and that it just went by in a flash. There wasn't a lot of, of meat to, on these bones of a story. And I think I could have, I would have expected a lot more from Jody Hauser. Artwork wise, I thought the artwork was, was good. Uh, I love Roberta's characters. Uh, she does an excellent job of doing comic book versions of these actors and actresses that we, that we have seen on the screen. And uh, Warney is coloring is is stellar. It's it looks really good, and uh, for for the eyes, it's a, it's visually really nice looking. Reading through this comic, uh, I just wish the the body, the substance of the story, fit the 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 feast that the eyes get with the artwork. So um, I I think this story was serviceable, but I it's not near as impressive as I was hoping it would be for a miniseries where you're getting uh, two of my favorite doctors in Matt Smith and Paul McGann. So there's my review of Empire of the Wolf. Hopefully we'll be on to bigger and better things uh, if and when Jody Hauser comes back to Doctor Who Comics. So there you go, Empire of the Wolf, issue number four. Exterminate! I want to spend just a few minutes on this episode of Panel to Panel talking about my recollections of Gallifrey 1. I went to the Gallifrey conventions back in 2001 to 2004. I did three of them um, in the span of four years, and I had a blast the whole time I was there. Uh, for somebody who lives in the Midwest, going to California in the middle of February is definitely a plus, escaping sub-zero uh, or below freezing weather to go to California, definitely a plus. Going to the biggest Doctor Who convention in the world is a definite plus. For those of you who are listening who may not have gone to a Doctor Who convention before, if you are going to go to a, a convention, I suggest if you're going to do it, do it big. And Gallifrey One is the biggest convention out there. Uh, even conventions over in the UK don't have the number of guests that Gallifrey One can boast. That is due to the fact that Sean Lyon, who is the head of the Gallifrey conventions, him and his crew do uh, a bang-up job with the convention and also know how to treat their guests right. And that is part of why they get so many people, uh, not just guests that they personally invite to come to the convention, but also other D Doctor Who tie-in people like comic book writers and artists that uh, go on their own dime to go to Gallifrey One just because they enjoy it so much and like being out there and like uh, the atmosphere of the Gallifrey convention. One of the main reasons I went to a Gallifrey convention was Back then, uh, I was a big autograph collector, and I had always wanted to meet Paul McGann. I was so impressed with his portrayal of the Eighth Doctor in the Fox TV movie that when Gallifrey One announced that Paul McGann was going to be one of their guests and he it was going to be his first convention appearance ever, was, that had sold me, and that's why I wanted to go out there. 
I think Paul McGann uh, was reassured by by other uh, actors who had been to Gallifrey that they would definitely take care of him and he would be super welcome there and there were plenty of fans who wanted to meet him and for somebody who was kind of apprehensive about going to conventions I think going to Gallifrey set the tone for him and that's what caused him to start going to more and more conventions which I think speaks highly to Gallifrey One and how they know how to treat their guests right and how they know how to put together a convention so that it has a very family-friendly feel. I know listening to Radio Free Scarrow and them talk about their uh, experiences at Gallifrey, basically from the time that I quit going to Gallifrey is when they started, and they always talk about how the community that is there at Gallifrey One makes it feel special, and I can attest that even when I was there in the pre-new series years, that was always that way back then. Meeting different uh, actors and actresses that I that I met over the, the three conventions I went to out there, even the the writers of Doctor Who novels and uh, various different people that I met there, just hanging out with them and getting to know them and going to the bar and having a drink with them uh, has, I have a lot of very fond memories from that. So first of all, I'd like to say Gallifrey One is definitely a convention. If you have the opportunity to go, I highly recommend it. I don't think you'll ever talk to anybody who's ever been to Gallifrey One who wouldn't recommend it to somebody. And two, just in general, if you've never been to a Doctor Who convention, if you want to feel that camaraderie with other Doctor Who fans, find yourself a Doctor Who convention even if it's one that's just nearby you, and go to it. It is well worth it. It is great to meet other Doctor Who fans. Um, there's hardly a bad one in the bunch, and you will not regret going out and, and becoming social um, and, and sharing in this fellowship that we all have in Doctor Who. So don't miss out. Definitely go to a convention when you have a chance. And that is my quick little recollection of Gallifrey. Today on Doctor Who Panel to Panel, I have a long-lost friend of mine, Arnold T. Blumberg. Arnold, thank you for joining me today. It is a pleasure. It's been a long time since we talked. Yes, it has. Uh, well over a decade by a long shot. Um, I've You wear a lot of different hats, or you have worn a lot of different hats in your, your career. And when I first met you... You were working on the Overstreet comic book price guide. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, by by the time we were we were just talking before you started recording about when the last time was we saw each other, and that would have been before I went over. Shortly after doing Overstreet, I went over to be curator of uh, Jeppy's Entertainment Museum. After that, yeah, and that was before that. So yeah, that was that was quite a while ago. Yeah. So so you've been a comic fan for a long time. Um, I'm I'm not even sure I I know kind of know your backstory. How did you get involved in becoming interested in comic books? I think it's probably the same story a lot of us had. I can't remember a time that I wasn't reading comics. I just grew up with comics as an essential part of my experience. I mean, like the earliest memories I have are reading. Harvey comics like Casper and Richie Rich and all that oh, sure. stuff. And, yep. and I had a lot of comics from my mother and her brother. And he was a DC fan. And I, so I had a lot of uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, like Superman and a couple other things that he okay. had left behind. 
But for whatever reason, that didn't hook me nearly as much as all the Marvel stuff I wound up reading in my own contemporary time. And I was very quickly a massive Marvel fan. Basically, I went from Harvey to Spidey Super Stories to regular Um, Amazing Spider-Man. And then from there, the rest of the Marvel Universe. And there was a time there in the 80s where I subscribed to virtually every Marvel title. And I could still remember them coming to the house. And the first, they used to come in the brown wrappers. Yep. And yep. then they started they started sending them out in these really like thin plastic bags with a with a thin board in them. And uh, that was a joy. So, so <laughs> I mean, it's always been a part of what I love and what I do. Uh-huh. Um. So, how did I on the the opposite side of the, well, not really the opposite side, but uh, since we're this is a Doctor Who comics podcast, we know the comic side. How did you get interested in Doctor Who? Well, uh, try to do a short version of that. Uh, it took <laughs> a long time to figure out the timeline of that, but basically, I'd seen bits and pieces of it when I was a kid. I grew up like not just comics, but a Star Trek fan and you know the the first mm-hmm. trilogy the first Star Wars trilogy I was, yep. I was buying all the Kenner toys and uh and then a couple times we'd pass by Maryland Public Television and my mother would like see something say oh look this guy has curly hair like you you'd probably like this <laughs> and and I would watch like a minute and it just didn't hook me and I know that I saw a bit of Armageddon factor and a bit of I I saw Leisure Hive thinking I was watching a movie I didn't uh-huh. know at the time it was a show and then I now know, thanks to the good folks at the broadcastdw.org uh, website, the guys who are also part of the Red, White, and Who uh, book, uh-huh. yep. I found out that it was around August of 87. Apparently, one weekend, I turned on MPT and Attack of the Cybermen was on. Okay. And I was instantly enthralled. And I know that most Doctor Who fans will hear that and go, what's the matter with you? <laughs> but, <laughs> But I just, I think what got me about Attack of the Cybermen was what most people, in retrospect, complain about. It was obviously so steeped in history and continuity and minutia that it told me right away, there's a huge universe here that you don't know about yet. And so I was really intrigued. And there was Nicola Bryant. That was also part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I saw that, and then the next day I found out on Washington, D.C.'s public television, Doctor Who was on. So I thought, oh, great, I'll watch some more. And when I turned it on, I was thrown because here was a black-and-white story called Ambassadors of Death with a totally different guy. And uh-huh. I suddenly realized, wow, this show has been going on a long time. So from then on, it was Target novels and Marvel's Doctor Who comic series and everything I could get my hands on. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's no wonder we we get along so well. You and I both have <laughs> kind of similar histories. You know, I remember reading. I had Spidey Super Story comics when I was a kid, and you know, combined those with uh, Amazing Spider-Man comics and Marvel Tales reprints. Back, mm-hmm. in, back yes. then, you know, that's the Spider-Man stuff that I grew up on. Absolutely. And, um, the me getting into Doctor Who, it was a little bit before '87. It was more like '85, '86. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started watching, uh, I had a friend who was reading the target novelizations and, uh, I saw him reading these and I asked him what Dr. Who was about. So he kind of explained it to me and loaned me some target books. And then I kept borrowing the target novelizations from him. And it was about, uh, 12 books later that I, he let me in on the fact that, Oh, did you know this is based on a TV show that's on, I will probably television every Friday night, uh-huh. you know, and that kind of 
totally opened my world to Doctor Who, and Attack of the Cybermen was one of the first stories that I saw. Uh, wow, okay. When I was watching watching back then. so uh, That's interesting. We both kind of like came in through the same story uh-huh. almost. Yeah. Yep, yep almost. And uh, so so you've been reading comics a long time and, and a Doctor Who fan. Um, you said that you were reading the, the Marvel Doctor Who comics back then. Um, oh, yeah. How did you find out about the Doctor Who comics? Well, I mean, it, it all fits together, I guess, in a way, because I wound up working for that same company for a good long time through Overstreet and other things. But the same uh-huh. company that I was working for had started out uh, being uh, a bunch of comic shops, Jeppy's Comic World, throughout this area, the, the, the Baltimore, Maryland area. Oh, okay. Um, and there was one near me, and that was my go-to for picking up, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And I'd already seen stuff there. Like, I knew that they had Doctor Who stuff there, but it just hadn't been something that was on my radar. Once I knew it, the next time I went to the, the shop, he was one of the few retailers, certainly in this area, that was actually getting Doctor Who stuff. So, for example, there was a wall. I can remember, like, one side of the shop that had a wall of targets. And uh, okay. he, he would also get the magazine. And it was a little spotty, you know, like he wasn't going to get it necessarily every month, but you'd hope. And I remember one of the first issues I got was one of the ones with Colin and Nicola on the cover. And uh, and then again, the Marvel Doctor Who comic. Well, I mean, already I was a massive Marvel person, so that wasn't Uh difficult. So it's like add that. And uh, one of the things I remember the most about the Marvel thing, which, of course, any fan knows, it's like, okay, they were they were reprinting the. the the DWM strips and and yep. putting them in there, but they had these insanely bad text features that they'd put in the comic. <laughs> uh-huh. so they were trying to like teach you Doctor Who history, except they weren't that good at it themselves apparently. So they were pe- so for many years, a lot of my pre like conception of the show was warped by what Marvel had presented in their inaccurate. You know, stuff. And between uh-huh. that and some of the stuff in the Peter Henning books that a lot of us know, the coffee table books, yep. Yep. A, a lot of us got into Doctor Who with maybe not the most reliable information. <laughs> but it was fun because it was like, you know, it, you knew it was this whole big thing. And I was like piecing it together every time I got another magazine. It was like, oh, what what will I learn now that I didn't know? And it was so much fun to put all that together. Yeah, that's the to, same here. One of the joys of of learning about Doctor Who is going back and learning the history. And, uh, you know, I had my share of Peter Haining books and I, one of the first books I had was the Doctor Who illustrated A to Z where basically just had illustrated pictures of different characters and monsters and stuff and finding out what all these different monsters were and where they might show up in an episode that I might see on Iowa public television at some point. Exactly. And I, I, I think the first one I may have gotten I'm blanking now. Wasn't it the one that was actually called Key to Time? It was usually yep. like a smaller, like softback was the one uh-huh. I got in it, and yep. it had a lot of like one. had a lot of like fan art in it. Yep. And um and yeah, so that was like that was like my first main uh, book resource, and then between that and the Marvels and the Targets, and of course with the Targets, I bought everything I could get my hands on, and I was reading. I experienced a lot of the pre, certainly pre Tom Baker stuff, largely in book form first, because uh-huh. I I, w- I didn't wait. I read it, and then I figured, well, I'll see them eventually, and you know, yeah. Uh, so that was part of the fun too. Was like 
waiting for the day when I'd get to see some of these stories come to life on television that I knew existed, but I read them first. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in reading the Doctor Who comics, that like the the Marvel reprints that that Marvel Comics was doing, or maybe seeing the strip in uh, a Doctor Who magazine. How did you think the the Doctor Who comic fared compared to, you know, maybe if you read a Star Trek comic from back in the eighties, or or even compared to like just regular comics in general? Yeah, the good question. I mean, one of the things I've really only come to realize as I've gotten older. I think it also kind of affects more what I choose to seek out now. I think we talked about before we arranged this call, too. I was telling you how I really haven't been reading much of anything that's current. Uh-huh. Um, is that I've found, again, maybe as I've gotten older, I've found that for certain kinds of storytelling, certain kinds of um, like properties or, or franchises, I feel like... I, I can go along with them in certain forms of media, but in other forms of media, it just doesn't click with me. Sure. And I read a lot of Doctor Who and Star Trek comics, obviously. I mean, I and for a time, I loved the uh, the DC Star Trek run that came, you know, like around Star Trek 3, 4, and then they uh-huh. built around those movies. Yep. In the same way, I loved Marvel Star Wars, which was like a, like a lifeline between Star Wars movies. Yeah. But... Uh, Although I've loved Doctor Who in comic form and like read the magazine strip for years and, and liked a lot of them, there was always something about it that felt to me like, well, the tone is different. It's not like, like you know, there are fans out there that will sit with you for hours and argue the minutiae of like what counts, right? Uh, what's, yeah. What's, yep, canon. what's canon and what's not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, don't don't start with a big finish person because you'll be there forever. But it's uh-huh. like for me, I feel like there's a very strong dividing line. Like nothing in a Doctor Who comic is ever going to convince me that I would take it as seriously or quote unquote real as something that happened in the show. Sure. And and as I've gotten older, I find that I don't enjoy seeing some of the things I like from television or movies in comic book form nearly as much as I used to when I was a kid. And it might be part of just the fact that I never thought it would happen to me, but maybe I've drifted away from comics a bit, and so it all is like that to me. Or it may Uh just be that certain kinds of stories like work better. A superhero story is always going to make sense in comic form to me. Yeah, But, But some of these, not so much. Sure. Yeah, I I can see where you're coming from, and and trust me, I there I know plenty of people that that feel that same way. That uh, even for me to an extent, comics. Growing up reading superhero comics, to me, that's what a a, a true quote comic is is mm-hmm. a superhero style comic. Um, doing a, a a science fiction story or um, you know a comedy story in comic book form compared to what you would see on a, on the TV screen or on a movie screen isn't quite the same, but I, I'm still able to get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Um, oh, sure. Maybe not the, maybe not the same kind of enjoyment as reading a superhero story, but it's, it's nice to take something that I love like Dr. Who and see it translated over to, uh, the comic book media. Um, just like listening to a big finish audio, there's, there's, uh, Sometimes listening to a big finish audio for me is a, a nice change of pace from watching a Doctor Who TV episode where I can just, you know, put my, my headphones on, hit play, and just listen to it and imagine the story in my head. 
And I think for me, one of the things that worked for so long with Big Finish, which again, that too has fallen away for me largely, I think only because they do so many of them, it got so overwhelming to the point of yeah. I can't even, you know. But I think what worked for me for Big Finish was that that aspect of it automatically feels, and, and we both know that this is a silly word, but you know what I mean when I say it feels more real. It feels uh-huh. more like Doctor Who, like real Doctor Who, because you're hearing the voices of the Doctor and the actual actors. Yeah. So although the visuals are gone, I can accept that more as this is a story from that same universe Whereas when I'm looking at it on the page, I am supplying all of the missing senses, and therefore yeah. it's more removed. And the thing is, I spent years and years teaching comic book literature. I mean, I absolutely understand that this is a medium that can tell any kind of story, and there's extreme flexibility in what a comic can do. But in terms of a personal taste, it's you know I, I know what I veer toward is something that I can appreciate myself. And uh-huh. and that's, you know, like we said, that certain superhero kind of storytelling is what I grew up with and what I would certainly gravitate to. Yeah. Um, I've asked this question of, of a couple of different people on my podcast, uh, Tom Brevoort for one and Dan Slott for mm-hmm. another. Uh, Dan Slott was the one who I kind of brought it up. He asked me, um, in reading a Doctor Who story, especially like a classic story, you know, uh, first Doctor through Eighth Doctor. If you read a, a Doctor Who comic strip, and you, uh, I think of like the the Voyager storyline that they did with the Sixth Doctor, and and uh, where you had big uh, a big grandiose stage that you set this the story on. One where you know uh, the like you just said the nice thing about doing comics is. You don't have a budget for for effects or for sets, and you can tell big, grandiose stories with lots of uh, big visuals. Um, compared to Doctor Who on the small screen in classic days, where you had the wobbly sets and the the not so great budgets, how do you feel uh, a, a Doctor Who comic strip should be? Do you think you should be able to tell a big, grandiose story, or should you keep it more on the small scale side? so that it fits in with the feel of what the TV show was at that point in time? It's an excellent question. And and interestingly, we were talking about some of this just in the last few minutes. The one and only story that popped into my head was that same one. I guess we all <laughs> kind of go to that one because it's just so distinct. What was it, John Ridgway did the? Yep, yep. Yeah. It's just so distinctive. And if I remember right, I can't remember, is that the one that also leads into, uh, like, Tying the Cybermen in with the Vord and all of that. Or is that um, World Shapers, I think. Yeah, that's the World Shapers. World Shapers, yeah. But I mean, yep. in terms of all those kind of things, yeah, you're right. It's like it's a grand spectacle done done on the page. Uh, it may be a bit of a cheat, but I kind of think the answer for me is there's room for both. Like, since okay. comics is such a versatile storytelling medium... First of all, why not take advantage of the fact that you do not have any of the kind of budgetary restrictions that the television show would have and put mm-hmm. the doctor in, in grand you know, experiences and do that. However, yeah. at the same time, it's true, I think, that you can recapture a certain nostalgic feeling of the show as it was if you tell a story that feels itself limited or like let's do a, a Pertwee story that's set in a little bucolic English village because that makes sense 
and uh-huh. and not go too far afield of that. I think there's room for everything, and I think that's part of really the power of comics is that it can be both as limited as you want it to be and as grand as you can make it because you're only limited by whatever your the, the imagination of your writers and artists to be able to bring it to life on the page. So again, I also think it's a testament to the very concept of Doctor Who that it's a show and a um, a premise that can basically support virtually any kind of storytelling and you might as well try all of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, that's that's kind of where I I fall and I fall into that spectrum of where Doctor. The thing I like about Doctor Who as a TV show is that you can tell any kind of story that you want within the realm of Doctor Who. Comic books are the same way. Is that inside of a comic book you can tell basically any kind of story you want by drawing the the, the pictures and telling your story on on the comic book page. Combining those two, I I think you could tell you know, small, quaint little stories um, that have that, that classic Doctor Who feel. But at the same time, you can take one of, you know, one of those doctors from back, you know, like a John Pertwee, and put him into a story where you, if this was on a TV screen, you would have present-day visuals and, and the mm-hmm. big budget per episode kind of thing. Combining those two, for me, that works. Um, I, you know, there if I want a classic third doctor story i'll watch ambassadors of death or inferno or you know something like that let the let the the story breathe on the comic page and if you come up with something big and grandiose you know by all means that's what the kind of one of the great things about a comic is that you can tell that kind of story absolutely and i mean i don't I don't know nearly as much about like the full history of doctor who and comics to know if anyone's done it you might know. I don't know it, um, if anybody's actually done it, but it occurs to me, like talking about the Pertwee era, for instance, a story like Frontier in Space was like they're really swinging for the fences kind of attempt to say, all right, we're going to do full on massive space opera with multiple planets and all that. And I've always loved Frontier in uh-huh. Space, but but surely, you know, by the time you've walked back to the same bridge on the ship the 40th time yeah. in the six episodes, <laughs> you, you get the point that, you know, they, they want it to be grander than they were capable of doing. But, like, in a comic, you could do a full-on John Pertwee era space opera with no concern whatsoever about, well, we only have two sets and, you know, we uh-huh. have to do this location shooting. And that's the beauty of it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, as far as like classic doctors go, anytime they've done classic doctor stories, for the most part, they always seem to feel like they're kind of setting it in that same era with that same kind of feel. Uh, mm, it's, it's, okay. al- it's almost like giving, giving you a, uh, uh, a nice cozy meal, you know, some, something that you can, you can enjoy and go, oh yeah, I remember having this before. Sure. Um, the, granted, they they change the stories up a bit and uh, uh, you know do something a little bit different, but it still kind of has that same feel from the same era that they're trying to fit it in. Mm. Well, that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. All this talk about you know Doctor Who back in the day, you know, back when you and I first met, back in probably around two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, like I said, you were working. Uh, on the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, how did you get you you worked for for Steve Jeppy when he owned comic shops? Is that how you got into doing the Overstreet Guide? Yeah, I mean, what happened was uh, 
I'd grown up, of course, like we just said, I grew up with all these with reading comics and and being a massive collector of comics and like not just going to Jeppies, but you know whatever like local marts I could go to. Uh-huh. I hadn't I had never gone to the big conventions yet at that point, and wouldn't really until I was actually like working in the industry. Okay. But I'd go to like all these like local comic marts where all the little dealers would set up at like a Holiday Inn for the day, and that's how I built a lot of my collection and. Uh-huh. I finally decided I'd gotten to know through one of those, one of the guys who was a local manager of the Jeppies I always went to. He was a very nice guy. He was kind of moonlighting and selling from his own stuff also at these marts. And we always used to hang out and okay. talk. And then eventually the opportunity just arose to work at the store. And I thought, hey, even if I just do this for a little while, it would be fun to actually see it from the other side and like work in the comic shop. And virtually only a couple months after doing that, internally from within working at Jeppies, they had put out um, a job offer for an editorial position at the home office where they also had the Overstreet Guide and everything. So uh, by the time I was already like maybe only four months or so working at Jeppies, I had uh, moved over to be a research editor at Overstreet and then rose up and up from there until I was actually editor of the whole guide and all our other books and everything. And, uh, okay. And then went from there to the museum in, uh, 2005. Sure. How, how big of a challenge was it being the editor of the overstreet price guide and the other resources that they were putting out? Well, it was a challenge largely from a logistical standpoint. It was fascinating to get involved in something that obviously I still love doing publishing books at a time where things were uh-huh. really shifting uh, technologically. I I had um, gotten my first taste of publishing working on my high school yearbook, and back then you were still doing things like marking up photos with orange crayon and, you know, yep. setting things up. For, and, and then, of course, the digital revolution was happening, and <laughs> I got to kind of watch that happening as I was working at Jeppies. We were doing the books on digital tape and zip disks and jazz disks and drives <laughs> that constantly failed. Um, and it was a massive cluster a lot of the time. But the those were the larger challenges was the tech stuff and figuring out how best to get things to the printer and, and what's necessary there. But the actual content and everything, it was such a joy and and of course it helps if you're someone that likes routine work perhaps because when I first started long before I was just editor of the whole thing, um, mm-hmm. I would I just sat early on I would just sit all day typing in the prices that everybody saw in the guide. We had you know uh-huh. Bob Bob himself would work on all the prices and he'd give me lists of stuff and I'd type it in. And for me that was incredibly relaxing. <laughs> and a lot of fun to do is sit there all uh-huh. day in a room filled with comics and and type all this stuff in. Yeah. So yeah, there was a there was a lot of fun. I I really think looking back, that was some of the happiest I ever was was working on the guide in in the very routine kind of basic uh, stuff where we were just churning out that book year after year, and it was an essential source for a lot of people, and it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, how how did you end up going from there to working for the Jeppy Museum? Well, I moved up from over the years, and people came and went, and eventually I was editor of all the books. There was someone, a uh, couple people above me who are still like, you know, Bob Overstreet was the publisher. Um, 
and I was editor of the guide and then whatever other books or uh, magazines we did. But the guy who was sort of in charge of the whole gemstone operation, it was called gemstone publishing was that particular, like, I guess you'd say subsidiary of the whole diamond, uh, Uh group. Um, he and I had, had gotten to have a pretty good working relationship and, they had a gallery there where they showcased a lot of the things that Jeppy had purchased and collected. And uh, apparently, and I only knew this after a while, he had long had an idea of doing that on a grander scale and making like a, a formal public museum out of it. And, okay. uh, and eventually I was like sort of handpicked as like, this is where we want you to go. It was also kind of a vaguely... Uh, offer you can't refuse kind of moment because it wasn't really like I had a choice. It was like, you know, we're grooming you to be curator of the museum. That's what's happening. And at the time it was like, Uh, Oh, that's wonderful. But in retrospect, it was also like, what if I had said no, (laughs) but I don't think I, (laughs) yeah, I don't think I was allowed actually to say no, but that's, and and then uh, we spent most of 2005 and six actually building the place. And it opened in the fall of 2006 at uh, Camden Yards where the Orioles are and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's how that happened. That's cool. Well, was it, was it an interesting, uh, neat experience to, to see it all come together from the ground up? There are aspects of the whole thing about the museum that were a wonderful thing to see and great fun because I brought in a very close friend, Andy Hirschberger, who served as my registrar and helped me put a lot of these things together. And so there were a lot of things about it that were great and it was beautifully designed and seeing some of the things that we all loved, including a room filled with vintage comics and magazines was a joy. Um, But there were plenty of things about it that were extraordinarily bad and made and soured the whole experience. So it, yeah. And it's just like, I don't, I don't go on about that too much because that's the problem is when you have, you've had a chance to do something like that. Everybody wants to hear, boy, you must've had a dream job. And it's like, "Hmm, not quite. (laughs) Yep. Yep. But there were things about the, the actual for anybody, I'll say for anybody in the public who came out from outside and came into that museum and did a tour I'm sure they had a wonderful time, and it was extraordinary to see your childhood represented, no matter what age you were, to mm-hmm. see your childhood represented for you in such a very elegant way. I think that did a really good job of giving people that uh, sort of nostalgic hit. And uh, it closed a while back, and it's a shame that there isn't a few more places like that that really do give people that kind of opportunity to, to see these things put in like a historical context. There are a few, but it was, uh, it was, that part was really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as it being, you know, a, a pleasure and a pain, both as, as you know, somebody who uh, ran a comic book store for 15 years, everybody thinks, <laughs> Oh, that'd be a dream job. That would be great right. going and selling comics all day long. There, there's plenty of joy, but there's also a lot of headaches on the opposite side of that. That I can imagine. You know. Well, you probably had to deal with Diamond too. So. <laughs> yep, yep. I had to deal with Diamond plenty of times. So. Yep. Um, and, and you know, along with other uh, distributors uh, for various we, different things. We could do that on another show sometime. Yep, yep. Most definitely. But uh, now, uh, after the museum, um, one of the things that you're doing or currently doing is you are you're 
your own publisher. You publish books. Yeah, so one of the things I always wanted to do is do stuff on my own. And uh, it started, I started pursuing other independent projects. One of them was the House Transcendental Toy Box uh, line of Doctor Who merchandise guides that I did with David Howe. Uh And that kind of brought me into the world of Doctor Who conventions and how we met and uh, going to Gallifrey and everything. Uh And uh, we did that one uh, as partnership. And then he basically uh, took that on. And between that and a couple things he was also doing at the time that he had already been pursuing, including pursuing doing Doctor Who novellas, which... Uh, the final deal for that came through when I was, if I remember right, when I went over in, to England in November 2000 to help launch the Toy Box, the first edition of the Toy Box, I was at his house when he got the email, that I guess from the BBC, that was like formally saying, all right, we're moving ahead with this. You, you have the license to do Doctor Who novellas okay. through Telos. So uh-huh. he was launching Telos Publishing. And at the time, I was thinking, I definitely want to set something up where I'm able to pursue independent things as well. The project that really got that going was Red, White, and Who, which me and uh, Sean Lyon of Gallifrey and Steve uh, Hill, Jennifer Kelly, Rob Warnock, Jen Fennick, uh, uh-huh. John Lavalle, Nick Seidler, uh, I hope I'm not forgetting someone, <laughs> and some of their other friends, Dennis and everybody else involved, had been... Basically, everybody in that community had been kicking around for a while that one of the few books we were lacking in what was otherwise a very full library of Doctor Who nonfiction was Mm -hmm. a book that really chronicled the American fan experience and how that was both influenced by the show and in turn influenced the show right back. Yeah. And so we thought, all right, we will do Red, White and Who and I will publish it. And in the time it took to assemble that book, which was a massive enterprise, um, Stacy Smith, uh, who was also doing other books at the time, first contacted me about her idea to do a line of essay collections that gave very eclectic and original and odd um, takes on various stories of television, starting with Doctor Who. So we started the Outside In line. And actually, the first Outside In book came out long before Red, White, and Who, so that became the first book under my ATB publishing. Okay. And uh, I cannot believe it, but we're we're just a few days away here from 2022, and we'll be celebrating 10 years of ATB. And one of the things we're doing for next year is Outside In Regenerates. We've done, I think, upwards of eight volumes or so of Outside In so far on Doctor Who and Star Treks and X-Files and Buffy yep. and all kind of things. Uh-huh. And one of the ones we're doing for next year is going to be a revisit of the entire classic Doctor Who list of stories, just like in the original Outside In volume, only we'll be doing it with a brand new slate of writers and basically giving, like, here's a a new take on it 10 years later on everything. Uh And uh, so that'll be quite a celebration. And uh, it's it's been a joy doing that. I just love making books and getting them out there for people to enjoy. And that's been a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. And you know, uh, speaking of somebody who I own a copy of red, white and who, and uh, for, for anybody who wants to read about how Dr. Who came to America, you left no stone unturned in that book. 
Uh, it covers everything you could possibly imagine uh, from, you know, being aired on various different public television stations to the first Doctor Who conventions to uh, merchandise being made exclusively for the American audience. Um, the you, you cover the whole gambit on that one in that book. Yeah, that team uh, led by Steve, they just did an extraordinary job. I mean, they devoted literally years of their lives to assembling all that. And I will, yeah. I will just throw in one... <laughs> One little extra thing about that, too, is that when we did a reprint, because the, the book did really well and everybody really supported it and was like so happy to see their experience reflected in it. And then, unfortunately, we lost Jennifer. Um, yeah. And uh, so when we did the second edition of that. We dedicated it to her and uh, featured a page, you know, memorializing mm-hmm. her and her work. And uh, yeah. It was. It was very. I'm very glad that that book came together the way it did, and that she was able to see what we accomplished and what she was able to do with that. Yeah, and uh, as far as the outside in books go, um, I, I haven't read all of them. I uh, have seen a couple of them, uh, mainly because I'm in a couple of them. I did <laughs> uh, uh, for the X Files books, uh, the two books that you've done. I did a, uh, an entry for each one of those. And uh, I'm proud to say that I'm going to be in the Outside In Regenerates as well. It's it's so much fun to be able to actually like legitimately say, hey, we're not just repeating something. We're going to revisit this with a very specific and different and like uh, inventive way of doing. Because the thing too is when you actually, if you if you look at a lot of the Outside Ins, and part of the joy of them is how wild and crazy and and like format breaking some of it gets. Mm-hmm. is that when we did the first outside in it was maybe a bit more limited in its approach because we weren't quite it hadn't quite found that identity yet so really yeah. this is an opportunity to give classic doctor who the same kind of approach that the series has now very well settled in on and uh, and demonstrate how inventive and creative the whole community is that's contributing to it so it's going to be a lot of fun yeah, Glad and, you're part and, of it. Oh, thank you. And and for those of you who may not be familiar with Outside In, it's I always kind of describe them as it's an episode guide, but not really an episode guide. It's basically looking at a, a series, a TV series, um, through various different people's eyes or uh, totally off the wall ways of looking at an episode uh, mm-hmm. of a story. Um, right. The like for the the. Uh, you might have a uh, a review of a story done as a poem or as a comic strip, or you know you might have some weird uh, fictional story that ties into something. Uh, there, there's no no real limit. It's almost like a comic book. There's no real limit as to what you uh, or a boundary that you have in in uh, summing up an episode for a, a Doctor Who story, for example. Yeah, exactly. It's and like it grew out of the idea of well, there we we all like these like critical essay collections and giving people a chance to have a very personal take on something, but it just quickly evolved into taking advantage of all the opportunities of whatever's there, changing fonts, changing the layout, you know, doing mm-hmm. like you said, doing comic strip. And for me, since I do all the book design as well. Uh, getting a new outside-in manuscript every time Stacy's done with it is like uh, a lot of fun because I know that I'm going to hit 
a few places at some point where it's going to be absolutely impossible to do what the book requires, and yet I'm going to figure <laughs> out a way to do it anyway. And uh, and it's a lot of fun. So it's fun for oh, me, awesome. and then you know for everybody that gets to read it. Uh huh. Well, that's great. I'm I'm glad to hear that the the Outside In series is doing well. Um, do you have any other books in the works? Well, right now, uh, it's been a weird last couple of years, as yeah. I'm sure everybody is aware. Uh-huh. I'm kind of amazed, actually, looking back, that we were able to get the first of the two X Files volumes out back last year when things were really yeah. Like, you know, uh, arguably there are things that are worse now than they were then, but people are less uh, willing to actually do anything about it. So things are looser now for a variety of sad reasons than they were in 2020. So the fact that we got one book out and got the outside interests, no one was volume one of the X-Files. And then this year we did the volume two, uh, Wants to Believe, Outside In Wants to Believe. And we also put out the uh, biography of horror filmmaker Mick Garris, Master of Horror, which okay. we're really proud to do. Um, and as for coming up, though, we're keeping things kind of loose because, quite frankly, it's it's just kind of hard to tell how things are going to be. I know it's a broken record for a lot of people, but supply chain issues have hit publishing pretty hard. And so, yeah. for instance, our printer... Uh, the schedule in printing between the two books we did this past year varied dramatically between the start of the year and the end of the year when we were doing the X-Files one because they weren't getting paper. They didn't have as many people uh, working on the various, you know, the bindery and everything. So uh-huh. we're going to keep things loose. And right now, uh, two things that I know for certain are that we're doing Outside and Regenerates because that's going to be our 10th anniversary book. Uh-huh. And we also have the first of what I hope will be more varied, smaller volumes of Outside In on shorter run shows that give us an opportunity to do an Outside In at like a lower price point, you know, okay. than some of these books. And the first one is going to be on Twin Peaks. Oh, awesome. so good choice. So that that one is Outside In Walks with Fire, and it will cover uh, the entire show, the movie, the revival on Showtime. And as usual with Outside In, possibly a couple little extra surprise bits and pieces. And uh, and hopefully there'll be more, but we'll see how things go as we're moving forward. Certainly, I, I don't expect this to be stopping anytime soon, but we'll just have to play it by ear for right now. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I'm, I'm, it's good to hear that you got things in the works and that uh, I know from uh, talking to other publishers that publishing can be a pain in the butt, just like any <laughs> anything else at times. But uh, I was glad to hear that you're that you're uh, chugging along. There's nothing that matches the part where the boxes show up, and you you cut open a box and you see like a fresh new book come out. It never gets uh, old. Oh, it that's just awesome. never gets old. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's something I certainly intend to keep doing as long as we have the opportunity. Awesome. Well, Arnold, you know, uh, like we said b- before we started chatting, we haven't. Uh, I haven't seen you face to face in person for, you know, going on 20 years now, but, uh, it was great chatting with you today and it doesn't feel like 20 years have gone by. Um, I, I enjoyed chatting with you last time uh, we got together at Gallifrey and it's been great chatting with you today and talking about Dr. Who and comics and publishing and, uh, best of luck in, uh, the, the outside in regenerates coming out this coming year. And, uh, uh, 
Thank you for joining me on Dr. Upan on the panel. It was a pleasure. And I just want to say one more thing, Jeremy, which is, yeah, it's been a long time. And I can remember you were one of the first people I think I really spoke to at length when I first started going to Gallifrey. And you were one of the people that made me feel at home. So it was great meeting you then. And I'm glad we had a chance to chat today. And uh, hopefully it won't be another 20 years before we see each other at another Gallifrey or something. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you, sir. Stay warm up there in the Northeast. I will. Thank you. <laughs> Many thanks to my friend Arnold Blumberg, publisher of ATB Books, who joined me on this episode of Panel to Panel. Like you heard in the interview, Arnold and I are somebody who met at, a, at the Gallifrey One convention. I just happened to look at his name tag and recognize his name and said, hey, you're the guy who edits the Overstreet comic book price guide. And that led into a conversation between him and I, which turned into a friendship that has lasted over these years. We haven't seen each other in many, many years, but being able to chat with him uh, like I did just a few weeks ago, and uh, it's like we, we haven't lost touch. It, like no time has gone, uh, gone by. And going to Gallifrey One, that's where you can make friendships like that and meet people as nice as Arnold and... Uh, uh, those are things to cherish and to hold dear, uh, you know, going forward. Our common interest in Doctor Who and our our love of comic books is something that, that brought us together and uh, keeps our friendship together. And uh, Arnold, thank you very much for being my friend and joining me on this episode of Panel to Panel. And all of you out there, I consider you all friends of mine. Hopefully someday we will all meet. And uh, thank you for joining me for this episode of Dr. Upan on the Panel. I hope if you went out to Gallifrey One, you enjoyed your time out there. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode, perhaps on your flight back or your trip back from uh, Los Angeles. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. So, until next time, this is Jeremy Bement saying bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you. Thank you.